Good morning. There is a wonderful passage of scripture we're looking at today that connects with what we've just sung about, about this turning back to you, because that's exactly what the Israelites in this chapter were called to do, and the ten tribes to the north didn't do it. So we're going to look today at this negative example and see if we can learn some positive truths out of it as we're finding our way towards the 17th chapter now in 2 Kings, part of our King's Chronicles series that we began in January and will conclude toward the end of August leading to the fall. And so what we want to do here now is to look very carefully at the way in which this event, very complex event, has direct bearing upon the way in which we live our lives personally and as well as what we are facing nationally. So with Bibles wide open because we're going to be following along verse by verse in this text, I'm going to read from verse 1. Down through verse 6. Now in the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hoshea, son of Elah, became king of Israel in Samaria. And he reigned nine years. He did the evil in the eyes of the Lord, but not like the kings of Israel who preceded him. Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up to attack Hoshea, who had been Shalmaneser's vassal and had paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria discovered that Hoshea was a traitor, for he had sent envoys to Saul, king of Egypt. He no longer paid tribute to the king of Assyria, as he had done year by year. Therefore, Shalmaneser seized him and put him in prison. And the king of Assyria invaded the entire land, marched against Samaria, laid siege to it for three years. And in the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and deported the Israelites to Assyria. He settled them in Hala and goes on on the Habor River and in the towns of the Medes. Now, it looks like ancient history, but I think when we delve into this and work it out, we're going to see modern life unfolding before our very eyes, and we want to connect it to 2013 living today. So let's look to our Lord again now in prayer. Now, Father, we... As people look at what's happening globally, nationally, regionally, the challenge is is at the same time we have to be willing to address things personally. It starts there and works its way out. So what we're asking, Father, is that we're going to have an understanding again of the way in which you bridge You bridge events of the past into the challenges of the present through biblical truth. And as we do so, this bridge becomes the bridge of wisdom, giving us something solid to walk on. 
to be able to get through the issues that we face day in, day out. And I want to pray for that person, Father, who's facing some incredible issues in his or her life. First and foremost, that one who came perhaps religiously or spiritually curious. A lot of questions and have authentic questions to pose. And we're glad he or she's here. Not because we claim to have answers, but we do believe that you do in your word. We want to draw such people not to us and our opinions, but to you and your truth, your word. And may they find that truth is penetrating their hearts and clarifying the confusion. For the one father that's facing issues in his or her private world, could be family issues, it could be aloneness. Just that sense of, does anybody care? You do. You sent your son Jesus to die for our sins. That's how much you care. and We care because you instill within us by your grace the Holy Spirit who produces that caring spirit. And I pray we'll find ways to show that to those around us. No matter what the challenges are now, Father, we want to come before you, lay them before you, and allow you to speak to us through this word. And so, engage these hearts. Equip these minds. Challenge these wills. Because again, Father, we've come here now to see Jesus and Him only. Praying these things still again now in Jesus' name. Amen. You ever heard of it? Wabush is a small, small town, if you've ever been traveling in Canada. Remote part of Canada. Labrador, Canada. Well, Walbush was completely isolated for a long period of time. But in the 1990s, a road was cut through the wilderness to reach it. Now, Walbush has one road that's leading into it, and thus only one road leading out of it. And if you or I were to travel the unpaved road some six to eight hours from the previous town in order to get to Wabash, there's only one way you or I would be able to leave. By turning around. By turning around. Which is the story of 2 Kings 17. Because there's a critical key verse that's going to unfold before you and before me, found in that 13th verse, 17th chapter, where God had said and warned Israel and Judah to turn from your evil ways. 
This is in keeping with what God had said via Solomon to that time in which the 12 tribes were all one united nation. That if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and what? Turn. Turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. So now we are in that fourth part of the prescription that God has delivered to those people who have been distanced spiritually from the Lord. And what you and I want to do now is to get our arms around what does it mean negatively as well as positively, in the experience, not only individually, but also relationally, of those who resist turning to the Lord. How do we understand such people? What are the issues involved in their lives or in our lives? And what has to take place for the turnaround to occur, to get, quote-unquote, out of Wabash country. What I want to do with you this morning is to look very carefully at three distinguishing marks of people who do not turn back to the Lord. Try to understand the whys. Maybe it's one of us here in these services. Get to the heart of the matter and address it from a biblical standpoint. But as we look at this now and try to get our arms around this, here's the first of what are three distinguishing marks that I see unfolding in these 41 verses. And the first is found in verse 1 down through verse 6. And we're going to phrase it like this. The number one, people who resist turning to God, who resist turning to God are marked by what I'm going to call here A compromised dependence upon others, apart from God. They're going to look for alternatives to God. Somebody else or something else to depend upon, rather than being responsible before a holy God. And that's what happens here in these first six verses with the ten tribes of the north. Let's check them out. Now, as you begin in verse 1 of the 17th chapter, you and I are informed that in the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, interesting, he starts there, Hosea, son of Elah, became king of Israel in Samaria, and he reigned nine years. Now, get our bearings, the ten tribes of the north, their kingdom has been shrunk in size politically due to the ongoing incursions of the Assyrian armies. While Hosea now is ruling over not much more than Samaria and the hillside of Ephraim. This is what happens when we turn from God. There is some kind of spiritual shrinkage which begins to occur in our lives, and we become something less than we once were. Has that been happening to you? 
feel as though you're less than you were? Or are you growing into something more than you once were? Is there contraction or is there expansion in your own spiritual dynamic? Well, we're told the reason why of this contraction in verse 2, where we're informed here that he, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but not like the kings of Israel who preceded him. It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? What that tells us is that the sins of the prior kings and the prior generations have had what you and I might now call a compounding effect. They now have high interest payments made on the sins of the past. And the spiritual debt seems to be escalating and expanding at a rapid rate. But with this compounding effect that Hosea is having to deal with with the sins of the past is the compromising effect coupled with, with this compounding effect that he demonstrates in his own personal life. Check it out, verse 3. Check it out. Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up to attack Hosea. This is the golden era, the golden age of the Assyrians. It's now around 722 B.C. They are expanding rapidly, the Assyrians are. They're overcoming Syria. They're overcoming the Babylonian challenge that they have encountered through the years. They seem to be putting this region in a vice grip. And now Israel feels threatened. You ever feel threatened by life? Here comes Shalmaneser, king of Assyria. He came up to attack Hoshea, who had been Shalmaneser's vassal. And now Hoshea is saying, I'm being attacked by the one I've been paying tribute to. I thought he had a sense of, of loyalty to me until we read a little further as to the reason why. In verse 4, the king of Assyria had discovered here that Hoshea was a traitor. It's a traitor. For he had sent envoys to Saul, king of Egypt. And he no longer paid tribute to the king of Assyria, as he had done year by year. In other words, now Hosea, the leader of Israel, who had been so dependent upon Assyria, has decided to switch his sense of loyalty and his dependency. Where does he turn? To the people that once held the Israelites captive. Egypt. Are you following what's happening in the news in the Middle East and Egypt in these days? Don't overlook what's happening now and connect it to what was happening then. And so now he begins to turn to Saul. Saul, king of Egypt. You see there that particular verse that stands out in front of you here. And so, as you look at so, what you find is that here is one who is pharaoh of the land. What do we know about him? Well, people have tried to figure out some ingenious ways of the meaning of his name. One particular scholar believes that refers to the delta city of Soas, which is shortened to so. 
Another believes that it's an abbreviation of Osorik and the fourth, the last ruler of the 22nd dynasty. And you say, Gary, so what? Well, what I want you to understand here is this. Bottom line, we've got a man, Hosea, who is not dependent upon God. He's dependent upon others apart from God. And one in one form of dependency, when it's no longer producing, he turns then to another form of dependency, and he hopes will produce. But Egypt, the one that he will be dependent upon, and he thinks will liberate him from Assyria, is the very one that had enslaved his people in a prior generation. And it's astounding to me how people will return to the one who would hold them in bondage spiritually. How well did so reign? I'd say so-so. But when you and I look back over the course of time, what we remember is that Abraham, when he felt challenged in the land of Canaan, he and his wife headed where? Toward Egypt. And when the Israelites in the wilderness were feeling so overwhelmed by the wilderness experience, they long to return to where? Egypt. And when that begins to unfold before us, I think of a particular counseling experience years ago in another setting, in another time. She's sitting in my office and we're talking. She's been abused. I ask her why she remains in the relationship trying to unlock the door of her heart. She gets honest with me to the degree she's willing and says, he's something of an addiction. He's not right for me. He's not good for me. But I need him. He's something of an addiction. He's not right for me. He's not good for me. But I need him. And I'm drawn right back to the ten tribes of the north. For you see, Egypt is becoming addictive. Assyria no longer is meeting their needs, so they turn to another that they can be depended upon. All this time, they're shifting their dependencies rather than turning to God. And then God had said via Solomon, if my people who are called by my name will just humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn, turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, will forgive their sins, will heal their land. And so in verse 5, the king of Assyria invaded the entire what? Land. Marched against Samaria, laid siege to it for three years, which is consistent with what Isaiah in chapter 7, verse 8 of his, of his 66th book of prophecy had predicted to the day, to the core. In the ninth year of Hosea, 
king of Assyria, captured Samaria, deported the Israelites to Assyria. He settled them in Hala, in Golzan, on the Habor River, which is about 60 miles from where Abraham had traveled on his way into the Promised Land. It's as if they're retreating from their beginnings. And in the towns of the Medes. He's something of an addiction. Not right for me. Not good for me. But I need him. And the irony here is that as they turn to Egypt to find freedom, instead they find further enslavement, which seems to be the case of our culture today, because when we run from God seeking freedom, what we find is further bondage, further enslavement. What are you running from? Who are you running from? And who are you turning to? The souls of this world or the God who sent his son into this world to die for your sins? See, it's a compromised dependence we're talking about here. Apart from God, and you and I know it, we see it, we observe it in the daily experiences that people use to simply cope with the challenges of life, the souls of their lives. But now there's a second distinguishing mark that I see here of those who just simply refuse, utterly refuse to turn back to God. It's found in verse 7 down through verse 23. Let's cut to the chase. It's called a hardened pattern of unfaithfulness to God. A hardened pattern of unfaithfulness to God. Such an individual, it may not start off immediately. They seem semi-soft, but they're becoming increasingly hard with every decision they make as they move further and further and further away from God until there is this hard shell. And you're wondering, why are they so hard? Don't they care about what matters and who matters most? Say, can I draw out for us here in verse 7 down through verse 23 three aspects of a hardening pattern that maybe you and I spot in, in people we love or maybe it's you can spot it in your own life. Three aspects of a hardening pattern. It's not going to show up on the screen, so we'll need to at least jot it down. The first emerges out of verse 7 down through verse 12. It's being unfaithful, comma, despite God's gracious redemption. Being unfaithful, comma, despite. Despite what God has done, providing redeeming. By his grace, freeing us from the captivity of sin. Look at verse 7. All this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them up out of what? And where? Egypt. Now take your pencil and draw a line from 7 back up to what you spotted just a little earlier in this study in verse 4. So, king of Egypt. God had redeemed them from captivity, 
And now what we find here is that they're trying to find redemption in captivity. It doesn't work. This is addictiveness. All this took place because the Lord had sinned. They had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them up. There's grace out of Egypt. From under the power of who? Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He doesn't want you to miss the irony here of what's happening between what they're doing in the present and what they've experienced in the past. And neither should we. Look for the contradictions of life where there's the hardening of the heart. Because we're told here, they worshipped other gods and followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them. In other words, according to Genesis 12, they were to be a blessing to the nations. Not a poor imitation of the nations. But you see, in this hardening process, everything gets reversed. So in verse 9, the Israelites secretly did things against the Lord their God that weren't right. And then they're described down through verse 12 where they worshipped idols, though the Lord said, you shall not do this. They forgot the God who redeemed, who by His grace liberated them from Egypt. Melissa Falk, who is part of an incredible ministry in New York City, writes this. There was a young man who had been involved in a gang in the city who came to Jesus Christ. But his ties with his gang, known as the Ghost Shadows, remained intact. He came to my office one day with a stack of what he called hell money, quote-unquote. He informed me that hell money was burned at the grave of another gang member who had died while helping you. And as the money turns to ash, gang members believe it is supernaturally deposited into their friend's possession in hell. The deceased, he informed me, had saved his life by maneuvering him out of a gang fight. It's what comes next that grips my attention. Melissa, he said, you always got to remember something. You always got to remember the one who brought you out. You can't forget the guy who brought you out. Even gang members have this innate sense of a need for redemption. For someone who got you out. All this in verse 7 took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God who had what? Brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and you've circled that right back to the one who they are now becoming increasingly concerned to depend upon, the one in charge of Egypt. 
He's something of an addiction. She said, Not right for me. Not good for me. I sure do need him. But you see what this passage is screaming at in our direction is that in this whole realm of the hardening of the spirit, the patterns of life, we've got to come to grips with the challenge to be faithful because of God's gracious redemption, because the unfaithful ones do so despite clear evidence of God's gracious redemption, and the Israelites knew about it. They knew their history. 7 through 12 develops that for us. But you know, there's another aspect here of a hardening pattern of unfaithfulness. I find it in verse 13 down through verse 17. You might want to jot this one down as well. We'll put it like this. It's being unfaithful, comma, despite God's clear warnings. The Israelites had gotten clear warnings that they would be taken away from the land if they, if they just simply refused to return to the Lord. Look at the warning signs, the warning signals. Verse 13, the Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers. It's plural, multiple warnings to multiple means. That's how loving God is when he issues warnings. Turn from your evil ways. Now your mind goes back to, and if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and what? Turn from their wicked ways. And the very same Hebrew word shuv is used here, as in Second Chronicles 7.14. And so he warned them, didn't he? Turn from your evil ways. There's the negative, but here's the positive. Observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your fathers to obey and that I delivered to you through my servants, the prophets. But notice verse 14. It's interesting. They would not listen and were as stiff-necked as their fathers who did not trust in the Lord their God. Now you see that word stiff-necked? It's used to describe the farming community's challenges, particularly in this case in the Middle East, where you had an ox who got stiff-necked and it became difficult for the owner to place a yoke upon that neck to be able to achieve what needed to be achieved. The ox was stiffening the the neck so that the yoke could not be placed. Now you contrast that with what Jesus said to his followers yoke fits. It's a natural fit. Don't fight it. Submit to it. Doing that? Well, if you look further, if you look further in particular, you get into verse 16 and 17. They forsook all the commands of the Lord their God, made for them two idols cast in the shape of calves. Where did they get that from? 
Do you remember when Aaron in the wilderness, based upon the paradigm that they had learned at where? Egypt. Constructed a golden what? Calf, to be wished. It seems as though they are continuously grappling with spiritual rehostage taking here. That's affecting their capacity to worship as God had told them to. Because we become increasingly that which we worship. We become increasingly like the one we worship. And if you worship the Lord, you become more loving, more gracious, more wise, stronger. Worship has direct practical implications upon our lives. Unfaithful despite God's clear warning. Verse 13 through 17, you know, National Geographic tells us that Yellowstone National Park, there is a particular ranger who's leading a group of hikers. The ranger was so intent on describing the scene, the animals and the flowers and the terrain to the hikers that he decided that he was going to turn off his cell phone and his two-way radio so that nobody would be distracted. Nearing the tower, they write, the ranger was met by a nearly breathless lookout who asked why he hadn't responded to the messages. A grizzly bear had been stalking the group and the authorities were trying to warn them of the danger. you see, unfaithful ones shut down the communication signals being delivered. Warnings are God's way of revealing grace and love. So here you have it now, these various elements that are tied to a hardened pattern of unfaithfulness to God. In verse 7 through 12, unfaithful despite God's gracious redemption. You never forget the one who saved, but they did. Verse 13 down through verse 17, unfaithful despite God's clear warnings. There's grace being delivered in the warnings. But a third element in verse 18 down through verse 23, unfaithful despite God's righteous judgment. So in verse 18, the Lord was very angry with Israel. And God's anger and God's love are not contradictions to one another. They're tremendous compliments of one another. This is not unrighteous anger. This is a holy, righteous, loving anger. He removed them from his presence. He doesn't say he annihilated them, but he removed them. That's mercy in itself. Only the tribe of Judah was left. And there you find grace, you find mercy, because even though he shrunk it to Judah, out of Judah will come Jesus who redeemed these ten tribes types people who have now been scattered into various regions of Assyria. That's your God. Unfaithful they were, despite God's righteous judgment. In verse 18, down through verse 23, 
And so you get to the end of 23, and the Lord removed them from his presence as he had worn through all his servants, the prophets. So the people of Israel were taken from their homeland into exile in Assyria, astoundingly as the writer now defines, describes, and helps us to understand further. They're still there, he said. They're still there. And so now you're looking at this, at this challenge of turning to God and the distinguishing marks, a compromised dependence upon others apart from God, that, that sense of addictiveness to something or someone apart from the will of God, apart from the person of God, one through six, a hardened pattern of unfaithfulness, to God, verse 7 down through verse 23, with those three aspects we've just noted. But now I want you to notice with me this third distinguishing mark, astounding. Astounding. comes on verse 24 through the rest of the chapter. It's what thirdly what you and I might call a blended system of beliefs about God. In other words... Let's take a little bit of Hinduism and a little bit of Christianity and a little bit of Islam, put in a dab of Indian-type worship, throw it together in the blender, and now I've got my own personalized cup of Christian coffee with a small C. Notice how it reads. The king of Syria brought these people together from Babylon and Kutha and Ava, Hamath and so forth. And notice what happens here. When they first lived there, they didn't worship the Lord, so he sent lions among them and they killed some of the people. And you say, well, well, what's going on here? How could God allow for something like even like even this to occur until you realize that God was gracious enough to say this would happen. Because in Leviticus 26, verse 21, if you remain hostile toward me and refuse to listen to me, I'll multiply your afflictions seven times over as your sins deserve. I'll send wild animals against you. And now here you have it here in these verses. God's just being true to his word. So it's reported to the king of Assyria, the people you deported, resettled in the towns of Samaria, don't know what the God of the country requires. He sent lions among them, which are killing them off because his people don't know what he requires. And so the king of Assyria gave them this order. Well, have one of the priests you took captive from Samaria go back to live there and teach the people what the God of the land requires. You mean to tell me one of those false spiritual type religious leaders is going to now be sent back to supposedly teach them truth? This is going to be a hardening of the spiritual arteries. So in verse 28, one of the priests who had been exiled from Samaria came to live where? In Bethel. And that's the place where the calves were erected to offer worship to an alternative God and taught them how to, let's put this one in quotes, worship the Lord, unquote. As if he's saying, I want you to read this with a sense of irony. Because this is how the king of Assyria viewed it, not how God would view it. Nevertheless, each national group made, and I want you to underline how many times the word made keeps reappearing here, because they're getting really creative with their spirituality. 
Nevertheless, each national group made its own gods in the several towns where they settled, set them up in the shrines the people of Samaria had made at the high places. The men from Babylon made Sukkoth Banath. The men from Kuthoth made Nergei. The men from Hamath made Ashamah. The Avites made Nibsa and Taratak. And the Seraphites they burned their children in the fire sacrifices and so on. And now we see the degeneracy and the downward spiral that occurs when we move away from what God has revealed to the alternatives of what humanity will produce. And now we see the ethics of life being challenged in the very land that God had chosen. And so, in verse 32, they worshiped the Lord, but they also appointed all sorts of their own people to officiate for them as priests in the shrines at the high places. And they worshiped the Lord, comma, but they also served their own gods in accordance with the customs of the nations with which they had been brought. This would have been a very interesting cultural experience, but it is a devastating spiritual reality. As they're all being thrown into the blender now, and people are assuming because it's spirituality, therefore it's some form of acceptance before God, and God is saying no, no, and no. It's a blended system of beliefs about God. And so in verse 34, to this day, they persist in their former practices. Drop down with me to verse 40. They would not listen. They persisted in their former practices, didn't they? Even while these people were worshiping the Lord, simultaneously they are serving their idols, you see. To this day, their children and grandchildren continue to do as their fathers did. Spirituality is not Christianity necessarily. And now we find the blending of the true and the false, the right and the wrong. And it's a recreation and an abomination of what God himself had revealed. Is there any hope? You ever heard, you football fans, the story of wrong way, Regos? New Year's Day, Georgia Tech is playing UCLA in the Rose Bowl. There's this young man named Roy Regos. He recovers a fumble for UCLA, picks up the loose ball, loses his sense of direction, and runs 65 yards toward the wrong goal line. One of his teammates, Beanie Lum, love that name, ran him down and tackled him. One of his own teammates kept him from going any further. Do you see some spiritual lessons here? Happened in the first half. Halftime, and Coach Price is quiet, looking at his team. It's Rose Bowl, you know. People are watching. 
three minutes before second half starts, Coach Price looks up and says, Men, the same team that played the first half will start the second. Players get up and start heading out all but Regals. Doesn't budge. Coach looks, he sees Regals sitting there, and he says, That includes you, Roy, as he puts his hand on Regal's shoulder. Same team that played the first half. I'll start the second. And Regos looks up. Got tears rolling down his cheeks. Coach, he said, can't do it. Ruined it. I ruined the school's reputation. This team ruined myself. I can't face that crowd again. Price now puts both hands on his shoulders. Roy, he says, get up. Turn around. Go back. Game's only half over. Got someone you love who needs a turnaround? Maybe it's you. Game's not over. Ever have a loved one tackle you as you were heading the wrong direction? Game's not over. If only we embrace what appears now on the screen. The Second Chronicles 714 principle is alive and well that if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and what? Turn, turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, will heal their land. That promise applies to today as well. Let's stand together. Rich history, tremendous relevance, tremendous relevance to where we're at as people in the here and now. For that one or that thing that is so addictive, not right, not good, but we think we need it. By your Holy Spirit's grace, sever that stronghold. Break it. May he or she find that true right dependence is found in relationship to you. Break the hardened pattern of sin. Clean up the smorgasbord approach of spirituality where instead of a blended system of beliefs, we get singular and focused upon the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. So, Father, we commit now this teaching to our hearts. want to honor you with our lives and ask your blessing, I pray now, upon each one here. 
In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.